Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. And it says, And when he, as you remember, this is Jesus, came to the other side to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region." Now, what we're going to do tonight at the beginning of our study, before we start breaking this passage down, is I want to deal with a number issue and a number problem. Because some of you probably know this story and you would say to yourself, wait a minute, Matthew says there's two demon-possessed men. I thought there was only one. So let's deal with that. Let's go to Mark's account first. I'm going to show you that Mark has one, uh, he, he only talks of one, and Luke only talks of one. So let's go take a look at Mark chapter 5. Now, I'm going to read each of these passages and each of these stories all the way through because they're gonna, it's going to be valuable for us later on in our study as we break down Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. It'll have helped us to have read the whole story from Mark and Luke as well because they bring out some other things. And in Mark chapter 5, look at verses 1 through 20. It says, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Now as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So again, we saw Matthew says there's two men. Mark lists only one. Go with me to Luke. Go to Luke chapter 8. We'll see Luke's account of this. Again, as you've already seen, Mark brings out a lot of other interesting tidbits that will be helpful for us later in our study. <clears throat> but go to Luke chapter 8. Look at verses 26 through 39. Luke chapter 8, verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. 
For a long time he had worn no clothes and had not yet lived in, and not lived in a house but among the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission, and then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid." And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So now we see Luke and Mark say there's one, or they at least speak of one. <clears throat> Matthew says there's two. How do we reconcile this? Now, before you answer the question, I'm just going to tell you now and I'm going to show you, you're going to deal with this issue again with Matthew. Go with me to Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew chapter 20, look at verses 29 through 34. In Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 29, the scripture says, And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. So now here we see Jesus, uh, sorry, Matthew lists that Jesus healed two blind men. Go with me to Mark chapter 10. Let's look at Mark's account of this exact same story. In Mark chapter 10, look at verses 46 through 52. Mark 10, verse 46, as they came to Jericho, sorry, and they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now, Mark tells us that the man's name is Bartimaeus, actually tells us who his father is. But Matthew said there were two men. Mark only speaks of one. Go to Luke. Let's go to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verses 35 through 43.
Luke chapter 18, verse 35, as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging and hearing a crowd going by. He inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And he, when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave, God, gave praise to God. So what do we make of this? Is this an error? I mean, is there an error? Uh, or, well, how do we deal with this? Well, before you answer that question, let's, let's lay some foundation. Whenever we deal with people questioning the Word of God or questioning God Himself, you need to base whatever it is you respond with from the Word of God by itself. Let me give you an example of a couple of things that I'm talking about. We live in a day and age in which uh, the world is going nuts over uh, global warming and, and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and how, you know, if we keep this up, you know, the oceans are going to, you know, make the peninsula of Florida disappear or whatever it is and all this kind of stuff. Well, you guys that live in Palm Bay, you'd be getting beachfront property at that time. So, but here, here's the deal. You need to let scripture be what you use to look at the world at all times. Always use scripture. Don't try to come up with an answer for this by, well, I think we've got to let scripture speak to us on this. But, and so for years, as I have heard all this stuff about global warming and all this kind of stuff, the spirit of God just reminds me that the scripture says that God is the one who determines how far the oceans go. Doesn't the scripture say he has determined the oceans go this far and no more? The Bible says he controls where the storms hit, where the lightning strikes, where the wind blows. God controls all of that. Don't think for a second that we actually control the climate, that we actually control how far the oceans are going to rise or shrink. That's not up to us. That, the Bible says that that's all something that God controls. For, I've heard people say, well, it's not a fact until it's been proven. You ever heard people say that? It's not a fact until it can be proven. Well, let me ask you a question. It wasn't really proven in man's eyes that the world was round until 1492. Was it not a fact that the world was round until 1492? Or was it a fact that the world was round even though man hadn't figured it out at that point? But the Bible had already said years and years before that, that God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. The scripture has already described that the earth was round from the beginning. There's many places. Folks, let me just say something to you. When you deal with discrepancies that, that are apparent in Scripture or seem to be, let Scripture speak to it first. So let's go with me. Go real quickly to, with me to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, look at verses 16 and 17. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The scripture says that all scripture is what? It's breathed out by God. Go with me to 2 Peter. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at verses 20 and 21. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, 
But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So with what we've just read here from Scripture, did Matthew make a mistake and think there were two when there were only one? Did Mark and Luke make a mistake by saying that they only listed one? No. Let me throw something out to you. Well, before I do that, let me ask you a question. How many were there, two or one? There's actually only one real answer. There were two. If the scripture says there were two, there were two. Well, how come? Well, did Mark say there was only one? And did Luke say there was only one? They only listed one of the two. Actually, there's a strong chance that one of the two in each instance was far more vocal. There were two. The scripture says there were two. There were two. But Mark's account deals with one of them, and Luke's account deals with one of them. We don't know much about the other one, but don't think for a second that one made a mistake or whatever. The scripture, if, now, we'd have an issue if it said there was only one man. It doesn't say that. It just, he speaks of one. And as you know, whenever you got two people, when, if one of them is real noticeable, you might not hear a lot of people talk about the other one. Like, for example, if I were to ask you to list the 12 disciples for me right now, could, how, many, how many of you could actually do it? You've practiced it, though, haven't you? You've practiced it. You've been in your room working on it. And it gets tricky because one has a couple of names in the scripture. And so, but for the most part, and don't feel bad, most of us couldn't list all 12 disciples, right? And you've been Christians for a while. But if I asked you to name three, could you? And you would say, Peter, James, and John, right? Why? Because they were more noticeable in, in, in their speaking, in, in the scriptures, their responsibility. There were more than just Peter, James, and John. But if you were to talk about the disciples, many of you would just talk about one, two, or three when there were 12. Do you see what I'm saying? Most likely what happened here is just simply, as Matthew points out, there were a couple of them. One of them probably was a lot more noticeable, a lot more vocal than the other. And Luke and Mark talk about that individual. And we'll come back to him at the end of our study. All right. We good? Don't ever think or fall like, oh, no, maybe there's an error in Scripture. All Scriptures God breathed. Whatever was written here, men were carried by the Holy Spirit when they wrote it. And if you study the book of John, actually, the book of John tells us that there are so many other things that weren't written down that Jesus did. And if everything that Jesus did was written down, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to hold it all. But these have been written so that you wouldn't believe that Jesus is the Christ. And God controls what's here and what's not. There's no error in Scripture, folks. There's no error. Use that because a cold case detective wanted to prove the Bible wrong. Mm -hmm. But when he saw that the witness accounts were not exact, that's what convinced him. He said, because any eyewitness is going to give a different account than a second eyewitness. Exactly. You're going to see that when we get to the end of Matthew in the resurrection accounts. Some are going to list two angels, some are going to list one, some are going to say there was an earthquake, other people aren't going to mention an earthquake. Exactly. And that's the whole point. They all weren't repeating a rehearsed thing. Eyewitness accounts are going to be different. So, were there, were there one or two men? There were two. But, we, but Mark and Luke only talk about one of them. All right. Now let's go back to Matthew chapter 8. There are going to be some things here I want to spend some time tonight pulling out of this passage. These men were so possessed by the demons that the Bible shows us that the demons were controlling their bodies and wreaking havoc on the nearby communities. I'm going to say something to you that I think you know, but I don't think we all know. 
I'm going to share something with you that I know that nobody here will disagree with, but I don't think we really believe it. Satan is not for you. Now, don't, don't run off and think, oh, come on, Jim. No, no, no. Because you're about to perjure yourself by saying, oh, I believe that. But let me ask you a question. If you really believe that Satan was not for you, you'd never sin. But there are times he whispers and you listen. There are times he entices you and you bite. There are times he offers you something and you do it. Do you see the danger of being real quick to answer? Satan's not for you. It's like, well, yeah, we know that. No, we don't. No, we don't. Go to John chapter 10. Well, we don't recognize who's behind the temptation. Well. In real time. Yes, I would say it sometimes, but if you're like me, there are times you even know it's not right and you'll still do it. You know it's sin and we still do it. Go to John chapter 10. Look at verse 10. We all love to quote the second half of this verse, but how many people have ever really meditated on the first half of this verse? Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. We love to quote John 10, 10. Jesus came that we might have life and have it to the full. You've heard that, right? But how many people actually quote the first part? That the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy why do we fall prey to his lies when he tempts us to sin? He offers pleasure, but brings death, pain, and separation. How many times have you heard someone that fell into horrible sin and where they lost their family because of adultery or whatever it is that they, and when, they, when it comes into that horrible public and it tears things up in their life, how many people have said, I never intended to go there. I never thought for a second I'd end up here. But... We really don't realize how much Satan is not for us. Again, we'd all pass the written test, but on the daily life, when he offers you on a daily basis these things, how are you doing when you know he's not for you? Let me just allow the scriptures to speak to this a little bit more. Go to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, look at verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? Oh, wait a minute. So hang on for a second. By his own desire. We'll come back to the rest of the verse in a second here. Don't miss that. How many of you are old enough to remember Flip Wilson and the devil made me do it? You remember that? You know what? It was, everybody laughed and thought it was funny, but it's not true. The devil didn't make you do it. You chose. The devil knows where your weaknesses are. He knows where your temptations are. And he knows where to go at you. And he'll offer you things. But if you sin, it's not because Satan made you do it. It's in you. It's born in all of us. For those of you who have raised children, you didn't have to teach your kids to say mind. You didn't have to teach your kid to say no. You didn't have to teach your kid to lie. You didn't have to teach your kid to hit or bite, did you? It's in us all. 
And even though we've been born again, even though we've been saved and we've been renewed in our spirit daily, we have to lay this flesh, which is still under the curse. We have to lay it on the altar and choose to follow Christ. And because of that, folks, don't lose sight of this fact. Satan is not for you. Do you all realize if he had the freedom to do whatever he wanted to in your life, you wouldn't be here. He would kill you in a second. His desire is only to steal, kill, and destroy. We need to renew our minds with this truth because all of us are still going to be tempted on a daily basis to go and listen to him. And he's not for you. He's not for you. Keep reading what happens next. Then, verse 15, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, if you do a study of the word death in the scriptures, you're going to find it means separation. Uh, Those of us who have been born again, we won't lose our salvation, but we do grieve the spirit. We do quench the spirit that lives within us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us, and we'll never lose our relationship with God and the fact that we're going to heaven. But we do lose fellowship with him. He's grieved. He's quenched. And when we choose to follow Satan, it brings a separation. We don't lose our relationship, but it brings a separation. And folks, I just want you to understand, and I'm going to say it to you again, Satan is not for you. Go to 1 John chapter 2. And by the way, please hear how much God loves us as I share all these things with you. Because the Bible says, as much as he's coming to judge the world, and we're going to talk about that tonight. It's time for the judgment to begin with the household of faith. He's purifying his bride And the church needs to understand that Satan is not for us. In 1 John chapter 2, look at verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires But whoever does the will of God abides forever. I I heard a song as I was coming over. I was listening to WCIF as I was coming over here before Bible study tonight. And I want to go find the rest of the words and lyrics. I only caught part of it. But it's already got me putting together a sermon along this line. And the song said, pretty much, it's all about Jesus. I don't want to make a name for myself. It's all about him. And all of a sudden, as I was listening to the words of that song, I started to be reminded of all the places that Jesus said, whoever is last will be first. Whoever is first will be last. By the way, if you've ever studied all those passages, the context is different every single time. He's always, but he's reminding us, the last are the ones that are going to be first in the kingdom. Yet what have we been taught in the church? Make a name for yourself. Leave a heritage. Leave a, leave a, a name uh, or a reputation. And Christians are fighting to, against other Christians to get jockeying up the position. And who's the most famous preacher? And who has the biggest church? And all these things. And the scripture actually says that's of the world. The pride of life. The desires of the flesh. All that stuff. And Jesus had said it over and over and over again. Don't try to make a name for yourself. The last in this world are the ones that are going to be first in the kingdom. It's not about making a name for yourself here. Go to Romans chapter 6. By the way, Satan's not for you. I still don't know if we understand that. 
I know I'm still learning it. Romans chapter 6, look at verses 20 through 23. Listen closely to what it says. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Now, before we go any further, how many of you over the years have heard people tell their testimony and they share about their old way of life before they get saved, but they brag about it? I was the biggest drinker. There wasn't anybody that could outdrink me. I could drink anybody under the table. Or I had the fastest car. No cop could ever catch me. And they brag about that style of life and what it was. But then I came to know Jesus in my life. Well, why are you bragging about that? Why do you want people to think you were impressive because you were the best drinker or you had the fastest car and you got out of being caught? You understand? The scripture actually says, well, how do we just read it in 1 John chapter 2? The love of the world. If you love the world, the love of Christ is not in you. The love of the Father is not in you. What benefit, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. For the wages of the payment of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Folks, I just want to remind you as we look at this man who had the legion of demons. And by the way, if he had a legion of demons, did it just happen to him? Was he just unlucky to have that many demons in him? No, if you know the scriptures, he had invited them in in some way. And in some way, he had invited many. They don't just take over. Just like you have to invite Jesus into your heart, you have to choose to invite the spiritual forces of evil. Let me tell you, stay away from the horoscope. Stay away from the Ouija board. Stay away from the, uh, uh, all that kind of stuff. Spirit guides. You start messing with that, and you're going to open yourself up to stuff that you don't want to mess with. And thank God for those of us who are in Christ, if Christ's in us, we can't be possessed, but we at the same time can be very, very oppressed. And for this man to have this many... I don't know the specifics of how it all played out, but he didn't just wake up one day and, oh, man, what happened? Where'd all these guys come from? He had in some way lived in such a way that he had invited them in. But let's go back to Matthew chapter 8, and then we're going to look at Mark and Luke's account as well. Notice how the demons were aware of their coming judgment and how their judgment was going to be executed by Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 8, verse 29. And behold, the demons in him cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Folks, don't miss this. You want to learn theology? Demons even know the theology. There's a judgment coming, and they know it. The Bible actually says in the book of Revelation that at the midpoint of the tribulation on, Satan will be cast down to the earth. Right now, he's still in the presence of God. He still appears before God. He's accusing the brethren day and night. But at the midpoint of the tribulation, he's going to be kicked out of heaven finally. And he's going to come down to the earth. And the scripture said he's going to really wreak havoc on the earth because he knows that his time is short. The demon said, we know there's a time when you're going to torment us. Have you come to do it before it's time? Isn't that interesting? And they also said what? We know who you are, Jesus, son of the most high God. They knew who he was, and they knew he was the one that was going to be executing the judgment. So, folks, put this in your head, write it down, go look at it later on. John chapter 5, verse 22 says this. 
The Father judges no one, but has handed all judgment over to the Son. Oh, and how many people in the world today that you would meet would say, well, I think one day when I die, I'm going to stand before the big guy upstairs and he's going to weigh my good and my bad. They're already starting off on the wrong foot because they think they're going to stand before God the Father and they're not going to be standing before God the Father. They're going to be standing before the Son. Oh, and by the way, so will you and I. We won't be judged for whether or not we get into heaven. That's already been given us as a gift. But the Bible says we're going to experience the judgment seat of who? Of Christ, where we're going to be judged after we're raptured. We're going to be judged according to what we were supposed to have been doing that he's gifted us to do from the time he saved us until he takes us home. We're going to experience the judgment seat of Christ. And Jesus is the one who's going to be sitting on that great white throne. And Jesus is the one who's going to be judging everyone. And the demons knew it. Go to Mark's account. Look at what Mark's, uh, Mark's account says. Look at Mark 5. Look at verses 6 and 7. Mark chapter 5, verse 6, it says, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. By the way, isn't that amazing? He's not worshiping in the sense of, oh, I think you're wonderful. But at the same time, his knees bowing. The demons inside of him make the man fall down before Jesus. They can do nothing but. Exactly. They know how powerful he is. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Go to Luke chapter 8, look at verses 28 through 31. Luke brings out something even more. In Luke chapter 8, verses 28 through 31. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him, and he was kept, and he was kept under guard and was bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into what? The abyss. I'm going to show you some stuff from Scripture that some of you might know, maybe you don't. But do you realize that there is a place of torment for the angels who have left their position? There's a place that all the demons are going to be, there's some that are held there now. They're, all of them are going to be cast there during the millennial kingdom. Ultimately, everyone's going to end up in the lake of fire. But there's a place called the pit or the abyss that the demons knew about. And they said, please don't throw us there. We know from Matthew's account, they said it this way, please don't throw us there yet. Go with me to uh, 2 Peter chapter 4. <clears throat> 2 Peter chapter 4, verse 4, sorry, chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Thank you, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. It says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And then he goes on and says, if he didn't spare the ancient world at the time of Noah. So here it says that there were some angels that when they sinned, he immediately put them into chains, place of torment. Actually, in the Greek, the word here is Tartarus. 
You're going to, if you do a study, you'll find there are three Greek words that are used to be translated hell. One of them is Hades, and we see Hades a lot. Actually, it's used 32 times in the New Testament. Tartarus is only used here. And then we've got the lake of fire, or Gehenna, which is used a few times as well. But go to Jude, verse 6. Jude gives us a little bit more information as well. Jude, verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So just as much as there is a place of torment for believer, or sorry, people on the earth, humans that don't respond to God's offer of salvation through Jesus Christ, the Bible says that when they die, they go to a place called Hades, which is a place of fiery torment until the judgment day when they'll be taken back again into the presence of God. They'll be judged again finally for not only what all they did, but also because they rejected Jesus and their name's not in the book of life. And then they'll be cast into the lake of fire. Just as there is a place of torment and holding for humans who reject Christ, there's also a place of torment and holding for angels until the final judgment as well. And it's known as the pit or the abyss. <clears throat> Does anybody, we don't have time to get into this study here tonight. Does anybody know roughly when these angels left their position of authority and were cast into this pit? Before the earth was formed. Nope. Genesis 3. Close, but no. You were saying Genesis? Genesis chapter 6. If you go back and take a look at the story about how there were angels who actually started cohabitating with women on the earth... Well, let me just back you up a little bit. You remember how in chapter 3, God told Satan that there was going to be a seed of the woman, that he was going to bruise his heel, but this seed of the woman was going to crush his head? At this point, Satan doesn't know about God's plan. Of course, by the time Jesus shows up on the scene and takes on human flesh, at this point, Satan knows who he is and he knows what he's going to do and he tries to get him to sin so he can't be that perfect sacrifice. And of course, then he tried to put him to death. But at the beginning of it, when God tells Satan a seed or descendant of this woman is going to crush your head, Satan doesn't know who it is. And so he now tries to mess up God's plan. He wants to get that individual. Yes, sir. Um, so if uh, Satan's an angel, mm -hmm. how come the Bible actually, that's a great question. Why doesn't God command him to go into it right now? God's using him for his purposes, the scripture says. Actually, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2 that even though everything is under Jesus' authority, we at yet do not see everything subject to him because God's got a purpose and a plan. And he's not tempting anyone, but he's allowing Satan to do what he's good at. God's using him for a season. We would love him to cast him into it now, wouldn't we? That's why the millennial kingdom is going to be pretty cool. So Satan doesn't know who this seed is. And so all of a sudden the woman gives birth to two boys. One's named Cain, one's named Abel. And we see that Cain is not righteous, Abel is. And what does Satan do? Kills the righteous one. Kills the righteous one. And by the way, if you do a study and you start watching, anybody that even starts to rise up that look like they might be a follower of God, a close follower of God who's righteous, Satan tries to kill him. Well, then what Satan decides to do is, as the more and more people are born, and it's hard to figure out which one it's going to be, he decides, what if I pollute the gene pool? What if I pollute the gene pool? And the Bible actually says that there were angels that somehow had relations with women, and giants were made, the Nephilim. 
And oh, by the way, I don't want to get into it because it's too detailed and too confusing to a lot of people. But the scripture, Jesus himself said, as it was in the days of Noah. Remember, that's why God judged the world at that time. The wickedness had so increased and Satan had messed the gene pool up. Bible, Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Have you all noticed all of a sudden in the news, everybody's talking about all these UFO sightings and all this stuff. And have you ever noticed the people that supposedly have these encounters with these UFOs, they get taken in their stories up and they get messed with their sexual organs and all that kind of stuff. I don't know how it's all playing out right now, but let me tell you something. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Those aren't UFOs, those are demons. The things they're seeing are the spiritual realm. And it's getting close. As it was in the day of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Go ahead. What is the scripture, Jim? Uh, the battle is not of flesh and blood. What is that scripture? That's in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Would you say it out loud, please? It says we, we, don't, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual authorities and principalities of evil in the heavenly realms. We need to be alert to this, folks. We need to understand this stuff's going on. It's real. We need to realize it. That's why when Jesus, when Peter said, I'm not going to let you go to the cross, he said, get behind me, Satan. He knew where it was coming from. I'm going to say it again. Satan's not for you. But there's a place of torment. And the demon said, don't send us to the abyss. Go to Revelation chapter 20. Verses 1 through 3. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. That's the abyss. And, he, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, in case you weren't sure who he was talking about, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Now after that, he must be released for a little while. So Satan himself, during the millennial kingdom, is going to be in this pit himself. By the way, did y'all catch that? He's not going to be ruling and reigning in hell. He's going to be bound himself and chained. And as you know, after the end of the thousand years, he's released for a while. He tempts people to come against Jesus one last time. And then he is cast into the lake of fire along with all the unbelievers and the the, the false prophet and the Antichrist have already been thrown there. But during the tribulation, I want you to see, go ahead. Will there be any sin at all during that thousand years? Oh, yes, there will be sin. And you know why during the thousand years there will be sin? Because the humans that survive the tribulation are the ones who are the given righteousness and they enter the millennial kingdom. They still get sin in their bodies because of the, they still got human bodies. We're going to come back and rule and reign with our new bodies. We won't sin, but these people will. He won't be fueling it. Like he, like he is now. But human nature is still human. Human nature is still human nature. And at the end of a thousand years, there's going to be plenty of people that have been born. And they're all going to say, you know what? We don't like this Jesus guy. Let's go get him. And so, uh, but during the tribulation, and I, I really want you to see this, folks. This is kind of important for us. During the tribulation period, these demons are going to be released from the abyss and torment those on earth who, have been who haven't been sealed by God. Go to Revelation chapter 9. Now, as I'm about to read this to you, I want you to hear me. For years, prophecy preachers have taught that this army that's 200,000, 200 million or whatever is China. Have you ever heard that? 
please listen to me, it's not China. <laughs> Look where they're coming from, and it's demons. Revelation chapter 9, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. By the way, I've heard prophecy people say, well, this might be an Apache helicopter because their sting is in their tails and all this. They've been told specifically, don't touch the earth, don't touch the grass, don't touch the trees, but, and don't touch anybody that has the seal of God. on. This isn't, folks, stop trying to make it something that it's not. These are demons. And keep reading, and you're going to see how bad it's going to be. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Now, in appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold, and their faces were like human faces, and their hair was like woman's hair, and their teeth was like lion's teeth, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is called Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, before we go any further, if these angels are bound, are they good angels or bad angels? They're bad angels. They're demons. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. By the way, do you think they're going to do a good job if they've been chomping at the bit for that long? And oh, by the way, they know. They know the day. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision. And those who rode them, they wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and of fire. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by the means of them they wound. Now the rest of mankind who were not killed by the, these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Satan's not for you. Satan's not for you. By the way, um, you don't want to be here on the earth when this happens, folks. People say, oh, things are getting so bad. You got no clue. <laughs> oh, it's getting hot. Oh, read the Bible. It's going to get hotter. <laughs> Go to Revelation chapter 3, though. I got good news for those of us who are in Christ. Not only are these messages to the specific churches in the book of Revelation, if you remember, all of these had promises that said, hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. 
In Revelation chapter 3, look at verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. We're not going to be here when that happens, folks. He's going to come and get us before that. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. People have tried to say, well, I think we're going to be raptured at the midpoint of the tribulation because that's the wrath of God. The first part's just the wrath of Satan. Or the no, no, no. Who's opening the seals? Jesus. When all that stuff begins to happen at the beginning of the tribulation, it's the wrath of God. Actually, if you do a study of the term, the day of the Lord, you're going to find it begins at the midpoint. Sorry, it begins at the beginning of the tribulation, carries right over into the millennial kingdom. Some of the terms are referring to the millennial kingdom. Others are referring to the tribulation. But the day of the Lord begins at the beginning of the tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble. Now, as we wrap up tonight, I want to look real quickly at how the people responded to what Jesus did. Go back to Matthew chapter 8. And start in verse 33. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and they threw him a party, and they thanked him for taking care of this guy that had been a horrible torture. No, they didn't, did they? What did they do? They asked him, they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Don't you think they would have come and put him on their shoulders and said, this guy, we've tried to bind him with chains and he kept breaking them and, and he was tormenting us and torturing us and he's running around naked and that ain't good for the kids and he's making all this noise at night and, and, and he's, he's just doing all this torture. Thank you. They don't. Why? Now, don't answer unless you tell me from Scripture why because the Scripture says, and Jerry, you were there last night so you can't answer. Their eyes were not open to that's not what the scripture says. They were the scripture said they were afraid. No, I asked you to show me what the scripture says. The scripture says they were afraid. Again, you base, they were afraid. It says it in each of the accounts, especially in Mark and Luke, they said they were terrified and they were seized with great fear and they were afraid, which is good. God wants us to fear him. Go real quickly to Mark chapter 4. You'll see that the disciples actually were afraid. Remember last week when we looked at how Jesus just spoke to the wind and the waves? They spoke to the, he, he spoke to the wind and the waves? In verse 39, Mark chapter 4, verse 39, And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now the disciples were afraid, but they didn't ask him to leave. The townspeople were afraid, but they said, would you please leave? By the way, this will make a whole lot of sense if you remember what, remember when Peter met Jesus really for the first time and saw his power? He had already met him one time. But remember when Jesus says, get in, hey, get in the boat and let's go out and throw out and get a catch when he's preaching? The beginning of his ministry. And Peter said, we fished all night. We haven't caught anything. And Jesus says, hey, just trust me on this. Throw it out there. Of course, they pull in so many fish that they weren't able to handle it. And they're calling for friends to help. What was Peter's reaction? 
get away from me, Lord. Do you see it? Get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Listen to Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, folks. The Pro- Proverbs 9, verse 10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One brings understanding. We should fear the Lord, but we should never tell Him to leave. We should run to Him for His mercy. I've shared this with you in the past. I'm going to remind you of it. How many of you took Psychology 101 and you remember you were taught the fight or flight mentality? When, uh, uh, when we have fear, sometimes we'll fight. By the way, you'll see that if you study uh, the history in the Bible of the nations that were afraid of the nation of Israel because of God. But instead of being afraid and submitting, they would fight against them anyway. Or what did Adam and Eve do when they were afraid when they heard God's voice in the garden? They hid. But there's also another way that people respond when they're afraid. The third servant in the parable of the talents says, I was afraid... So I didn't do anything. That's kind of like the deer in the headlights. Those are all bad reactions to the fear of God. Don't fight him. You'll never win. Don't run from him. That won't do you any good. Don't just stand there and don't do nothing. That won't help you. You'll get run over. When you fear God and you understand his holiness, you fall before him and you ask and you beg for his mercy. They didn't want him to be around. They knew this was a man that had so many demons in him, they couldn't control him, and they had tried wrestling him with a bunch of folks, tying him down with chains. And all of a sudden, this one individual shows up and handles him just by speaking to him. And all of a sudden, they were like, that's that's a power we're afraid of, and we don't want that here. But you have to understand, this was an area that was kind of Jewish, but kind of not. There were a lot of Gentiles in the area. So the Gentiles shouldn't be expected to follow the law of Moses. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. You're right. Like, like Allison said, they didn't understand who he was. But they knew that, they, they knew that there was power. And, yes. Hey, like I say, a lot of people, when, when they start coming under conviction, they get mad and they don't want it. Hey, I don't need you preaching. You're right. Now, go real quickly to Luke chapter 12. We're going to make it. We're going to finish tonight on time. Sometimes I wonder. I know how far we get on Tuesday and I start looking at the time and go, well, we're going to make it tonight. Sometimes I get preaching. Go to Luke chapter 12 and sometimes you listen too slow. All right. <laughs> Yeah, I know it is. I got to blame somebody. Luke chapter 12, look at verses 4 through 7. Look at what Jesus says. He sounds a little schizophrenic. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. By the way, who's he talking about? Himself. Himself. God, not Satan. I. A lot of times people say, that's Satan. Satan, again, remember, he's getting cast into hell himself. He doesn't cast you into hell. He's getting cast into hell himself. But then he goes immediately after that and says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? 
and not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You're of more value than many sparrows. He says, let me tell you who to be afraid of. You need to be afraid of God. Oh, don't be afraid. You're of more value than many sparrows. Why does he say fear God and then say don't be afraid? The answer is in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Look at verses 16 through 18. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16 says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For that kind of fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears God's punishment has not been perfected in love. Now look closely. If you respond appropriately, you need to have a holy fear of a holy God. And don't try to fight him. You're not going to win. Don't try to hide yourself. It isn't going to do you any good. Don't stand there and do nothing. That won't help either. But if you humble yourself and say, you're God and I'm not. Even though Peter tried to say, get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Jesus said, no, actually, I want you to come with me. I love you. But you want to know how much God loves us? Let's go back to last week's study. There are all this crowd of people wanting Jesus. And what does he say? Let's go to the other side of the lake. Does anybody know why now he wanted to go to the other side of the lake? There was an individual who was being tormented. And he wanted to go set him free. And if we will surrender to him and receive his forgiveness, acknowledge his holiness and our sin, he moves us into a relationship where he says, fear not. Fear, fear not. I, I want you to respect me and I want you to have a reverence for, my, for who I am. I want you to treat me like you would a parent that you respected. But I don't want you to be afraid of my punishment. That's gone. We have come to know and believe the love the Father has for us. Now, I share this with you for one important reason. There's one more thing I want to pull out from the story. Matthew's account doesn't bring it out, but Mark's and Luke's did. What happens after the people ask him to leave? Jesus gets into the boat to leave. And who tries to get in the boat with him? One of the guys. <laughs> one of the guys tries to get in the boat with him, right? And what does Jesus tell him? Now I want you to go back home. Now, I want to point something out to you you might not have ever noticed. The demons asked Jesus a question. They said, please don't send us to the abyss yet. Please send us into the pigs. And Jesus' answer to the demons was, you got it. The townspeople who didn't believe in him and were afraid asked him to leave. And his answer was, yes, you got it. I'll do what you ask. The one who came to believe in him asked him a question and the scripture tells us he begged him to let him go with him. And Jesus told him, no. Doesn't that blow your theology all out of the water? He told the demons, yes, when they asked the question. He told the unbelieving townspeople, yes, when they asked the question. But the one who was his child, he told no. Let me ask you a question tonight as we close. Will you obey him if he tells you no? Because there's something cool about this man. He doesn't throw a hissy fit. He doesn't go and get mad. He doesn't decide to follow anyway in another boat. 
He actually does what Jesus says, and he goes back to that area. By the way, have we ever meditated on this story and thought about how hard it would have been to go back to that town? Because you've been running around naked for a while. I mean, seriously, folks, let it sink in. Tormenting people. I mean, we, people nowadays are scared to death if some of those kind of photos get out in, onto the Internet. This man had been running around naked. He had tormented people. He had been howling like a wild animal. He had embarrassed himself quite a bit in that area. It would have been easier to, you know what, I'm just going to start over somewhere else. But Jesus tells him to do a hard thing and to go back and to give glory to God for what he's done in that area. We're going to close with 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I've heard stories that he's, he's had a, a big evangelical... Unbelievable, profound impact in that area. If you go back and study and do the research, you'll find God did an amazing work through that man's testimony back in that area. Yes, he did. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul has just been talking about this man. He's talking about himself, it's obvious, who had been able to see heaven. In verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast, Paul says, all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses Insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Do you see it? Is he God enough in your life that you won't listen to Satan when he offers you stuff that he says is going to be actually good for you when Satan's only there to steal, kill, and destroy? And are you willing to follow God even if he says to you no? And doesn't do things the way you want him to. But he's got a good purpose and he's proven it. Folks, I'm telling you, it's getting grievous to me to see how much Christians today, especially in America, are falling prey to the teaching that says you can be somebody and you can make a name for yourself. And Are you willing to just follow him even if he tells you no? I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.